Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I was fortunate to work with a team of people who created the country's first super PAC back in 2007, Vote Hope. We also did a lot of electoral work through the organization PowerPAC.org. I spent most of 2007, 2008 traveling the country, telling people I was trying to put a black man in the White House. And that work led me to interact with many of the country's political reporters. And in 2008, I went to a breakfast in New York City. I remember pulling up outside of the restaurant, and there was what looked like a kid sitting on the stoop with headphones dangling from his ear and holding a laptop in his hand. It turned out to be Ben Smith. And Ben has been at the cutting edge of technological changes in media and journalism over the past couple decades, from blogs, most famously at BuzzFeed, and now he's at Semaphore. He's written a book reflecting on the past decade of the media revolution and its impact on our country. I'm delighted that Ben's agreed to join us for today's podcast, which unfortunately will not include my co-host Charlene Chang, who was on a well-deserved vacation with her family on the East Coast. Well, we'll miss Charlene. As someone who brought a typewriter to college, was a sophomore when the Macintosh was invented, and whose first job was as a copy boy at the Cleveland Plain Dealer, where reporters typed up stories brought the pieces of paper over on which the stories were written to me. I put them in a pneumatic tube and shot them up a pipe to where the paper was physically laid out by hand. Uh I have plenty of questions and thoughts about the media landscape, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. So let's get to it. Thank you so much for joining me, Ben. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm probably as poorly organized and dressed as I was when you found me sitting on the sidewalk. I didn't say poorly organized. You reflected a different uh, generational uh, vibe, I think uh-huh. is the way to put it. <laughs> Let me just say a little bit more about your bio for our listeners. And I did not know until today, I was listening to the podcast you did with John Favreau, you been started out at the Indianapolis Star covering the crime beat, cut his teeth as a municipal politics reporter in New York City, where he started three blogs and eventually went on to Politico. And the Politico, his politics blog was a central hub of news and information in the 2008 election. In 2011, Ben created the news arm of BuzzFeed and served as its editor-in-chief, where I think it's safe to say that the highlight of his time there was running an excerpt of my first book, Brown is the New White. Well, obviously. Though. Yes, of course. A great, a, great, a great honor. Yes. It's all been downhill since then. After BuzzFeed, Ben went to the New York Times, where he worked as a media columnist, and last year he left the Times to start Semaphore, which we'll talk about a little later. Ben's new book is called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. It came out in May, chronicles the intersection of media, politics, and technology. It's a fascinating and insightful read, and that's what we'll be talking about today. So did I, did I get the bio right, Ben? Close enough. Close enough, Okay. So why don't we start with the book? Why why you decided to write Traffic and what what are the core messages that you're trying to share? Yeah, you know, I mean I like I think I like was at BuzzFeed through 2020 and came up after sort of in that moment thinking kind of, you know, what the hell did we all just live through? Mm-hmm. Um and 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 interested in trying to figure out yeah, you know, where this sort of moment of that really sort of I think culminated in Trump's election and the and the aftermath kind of where it began and what the story is of this very disorienting digital media, social media age that I think even then seemed pretty clearly to be drawn to a close was. And I think, you know, what was interesting to me was to go back to its origin story and, you know, kind of in downtown Manhattan with these, 
you know, relatively small group of people who all knew each other, who all went to the same bars and hired each other and dated each other, like many things start in mm-hmm. kind of scenes. And who some of them thought they were just kind of messing around with this new toy called the internet. Others could really see that it was going to swallow everything. Um, but but that's really the story that I'm telling is 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 this the origin story of, of this moment. So what the big question I kept having as I was reading the book was how new is this? Right. And in some ways, right, people have always used the media of their time to advance their cause. Right? I mean, after the Civil War, you know, Thomas Dixon was so mad about the popularity of Uncle Tom's Cabin that he wrote this play called The Klansman. And that play became the movie Birth of a Nation, which inspired mm-hmm. Margaret Mitchell to write Gone with the Wind, which had a whole impact in terms of sanitizing the, yeah. the Confederacy. And then in politics, as I mentioned, like blogs were all the rage in 2004. Howard Dean had Blog for America. And even before that, right, Richard Vigory pioneered direct mail fundraising as a tool for conservatives back in the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s, helping to lead to the rise of Reagan, who himself was an actor. So how much of what sprang up in the 2010s do you think was new and different? Well, I mean, I think, as you say, the sort of the core elements of politics and a lot and, and, the, and the way in which people are appeal to the better or worse instinct of voters and things like that human nature none of that is new mm-hmm. but the internet was genu- a genuinely new technology for distributing messages and you know in particular meant that after you know most of a century in which if you wanted to get a message out in a big way you really t- needed to control either a printing press or a broadcast tower mm-hmm. with all the capital that and sort of regulatory entanglements and everything else that that entailed, you know, so we, we shifted into this world where those gatekeepers and those sort of gates that they were keeping lost their power, where there were new forms of distribution culminating, I think, in social media. And I think, you know, and, and there was a, I mean, one of the really interesting things to me about going back to that moment, because I know that you're, you're a political guy, is, is how presumptively progressive it was. Mm that everybody assumed that the internet was progressive. And that's because young people were on it, right? Right. Um, Howard Dean's had been the sort of the first real digitally powered campaign. There was something called the Netroots, you know, and and a, a Facebook executive went to work for and helped Barack Obama's campaign for president. And he's mm-hmm. created his own Facebook clone on that campaign called my.barackobama.com. Mm-hmm. And like his latest 2011, Obama visited Facebook to do a town hall with Mark Zuckerberg and he didn't have to explain that he was there because it was a Democratic Party institution. It was like visiting Madison, Wisconsin. It's, you know, of course it's liberal. So, well, you mentioned uh, Facebook. So why don't we actually talk about that for a minute? Can you share, you go into the book about its role, and you just touched upon this now, its role in 2008, but then, then its role in 2016. And so can you share kind of what your like findings and reflections are around the role Facebook played as a force in the society overall, and then particularly in the politics of the country? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it's, it's you know, you sort of get your head back to this moment in 2010, 2011, 2012, when Facebook has moved from being a kind of a campus dating service to being, you know, something with a lot of reach across society, but still more among young people and students and more seen as sort of of the left and connected to these sort of like very progressive movements around the world that were happening on Facebook and on Twitter in Egypt and the North Africa in South America, where people were sort of banding together to push progressive causes. You know, and, and but the platform, of course, you know, was obsessed with the people running the platform. We're not thinking we want to be liberal or conservative. They were thinking you're spending 14 minutes on it right now. And we'd like you to be spending 15 minutes. And how do right. we get you there? And really what they saw was that 
well, if we can get people sort of in the word they used was engagement. And for years, basically, they experimented with, you know, it used to be that if you posted something to Facebook, your friends would see it. But what they started to see is, well, if whatever the thing is that your friends like most, if we start showing that to other people too, and whatever your friends are commenting on most, well, let's show that to people who aren't in your immediate friend group, because that'll get a lot of engagement. And gradually, Facebook moves from being this pure social network to being a media platform that is amplifying the most engaged stuff, the most mm-hmm. commented on stuff, the most shared stuff. And, you know, come 2015, they're starting to see some weird things that the Facebook people don't like. Like, for instance, there's this kind of garbage story about Hillary Clinton having been replaced by a body double that's running in a fake publication that was written by teenagers in Macedonia who are sort of parodying American politics and conservatives are sharing it without reading it because they kind of like the idea. And so Facebook sort of thinks, ah, that's not exactly what we want. Let's let's double down on comments. Let's really amplify the stuff that has a lot of comments. And the thing is that it's at a moment when, again, globally, this isn't particularly an American phenomenon. There's this new kind of right-wing populist politics that's all about showing that you're an outsider, that the establishment hates you. You know, you're Donald Trump or you're, you know, you can be an insider and still play that game, right? Like Boris Johnson. But, um, and the more offensive you are, the more establishment figures and media are wagging their fingers at you the more you're saying something really crudely sexist or racist, like the more it proves to your followers that you really are, you know, a man of the people and outside the system. And so Facebook, which is amplifying everything that gets the most comments, basically, suddenly is just made for Donald Trump. Because, you know, it's like you post a meme of Donald Trump saying something insane. And I comment like, you know, screw you, you're an idiot. And you comment, no, you're an idiot. And pretty soon the system says, wow, this is great. Like, look how engaged these people are. Let's show this meme to everyone in the world. And I don't, I'm not, this isn't to say that Facebook caused Donald Trump or vice versa. Things have a lot of factors, but certainly those streams kind of ran together. And that kind of very confrontational, trolly right-wing politics was sort of perfectly structured just for the mechanics of Facebook in say 2014 to 2017. Well, that was one of the things that struck me when I was reading the book was almost how what's the word, capricious or random, the decision was. Like, yeah, we'll emphasize comments and, you know, that'll be the primary driver. And then the, all the, the unintended consequences from that. And I just, I don't know if you have any reflections around, could they have gone a different way? And then I even wonder how successful was that, even from a business standpoint? Because right? even now there, you know, major layoffs happening at Facebook, et cetera. So do you have any thoughts around the, retrospective business wisdom of going in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question, right? Because actually, I mean, this is still open to debate, right? Like Facebook is a great meta, they call it now, but it's a great business, huge advertising business, continues to be a huge advertising business. I think that it's quite clear that the blue Facebook app has lost its cultural centrality and relevance. It's not where young people are. It's uh, many people like, you know, it used to be a place you had to be. It's not really anymore. And I think once social networks start losing relevance, there's no stopping it. They unravel. It's like a bar or a nightclub. People get tired of going there. You can't just like put in a new sound system and then people will come back. They're social. Um, And you're there because your friends are there. But, you know, but Instagram is thriving. WhatsApp is thriving. You know, so it's it's a little hard to say, well, they totally screwed themselves as a business because like they're doing fine. If you bought stock in them, then you'd be in a great place. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, I mean, one of the really interesting things that, you know, I think about is because one of the questions I've gotten a lot, because this book is in part about the generation of media companies, BuzzFeed and Vox and Vice and Gawker that came up in that era. 
And they were a lot of them raised a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. And people ask totally reasonably, like, what was anyone thinking putting hundreds mm-hmm. of millions of dollars mm-hmm. into these companies? And the answer is that they thought that it would be like cable. Like there's this new distribution, these wires, these social networks. And ultimately the people running that is are gonna have to pay for good content the way, you know, the cable people pay for MTV and ESPN so that people will stick to them. And the social networks made a different choice. They decided that user-generated content, which is, you know, has the great benefit of being free was the way that they're gonna go. I think the jury is a little still out on that bet. Like what if Facebook, Twitter, had sort of continued to move up the food chain to compete with like Netflix, would they be in a better place than they are now? Because I, I think that that sort of moment of social networks seems to be passing and it's not totally clear what's going to be left of them. Do you think that, well, just somewhat related, but in terms of Facebook as a business and where it's heading, this whole virtual reality space that we can all, it's, I'm frankly a little bit conceptually torn. I was like, well, maybe you could connect with, and that was kind of the original promise, right, of the, of the internet, right? You could connect with people all over the country, all over the world. And then you would think conceptually, you could have this whole virtual reality piece and you could, you know, go to walk down the street in Paris that I believe in your living room, but then also connect with people. But it seems like they made this big bet, but then that's not happening. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's really taking out. Do you have any assessment of where that is at? Well, I guess it seems to me that, I mean, as you say, like the sort of utopian promise was this, and, and I think you and I, we probably met on Twitter. I mean, it, it was there's something very lovely about the sort of possibility to connect and meet people and build movements and communities online. I, I mean, I, my, again, this isn't a, this is my sort of impression rather than some kind of entirely scientific take, but it does seem to me that that people now feel very overwhelmed by the amount mm-hmm of stuff, amount of voices out there and what they want is something different is someone who will sift through all that is to figure out who they can trust. And to some degree is to retreat into smaller, more fragmented communities away from these giant, giant public squares. Conceivably, you can do that. Because I don't know if you remember this whole thing, but there was a second life. There was a whole thing about second life was a platform. You could actually have your virtual reality piece and whatnot. So you could have your little, you know, enclave in theory. But I don't know a whole bunch of people. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, gamers, you know, gamers, gaming is this place where people are already living in a kind of VR mm-hmm. and hanging out with their, my, you know, sons hanging out with his friends there. And that's real. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that it seems like most people in technology believe that as these headsets get better and lighter weight and easier to use more, and, there'll be more and more use cases for them. Maybe you and I would be talking kind of in a way that felt like we were in the same space, which would be right. nice, right? Instead of this, um, instead of through a two-dimensional screen. But it's, cl- but I don't know, like not right now. I mean, that mm-hmm. Apple headset, you have to have a battery in your pocket and it, like you're like clipping mm-hmm. a battery onto your mm-hmm. belt and it like only lasts a couple of hours. Like we're clearly in a couple of iterations away in technology just from from that being the next thing. And I think, that, yeah, it was sort of strange that Facebook, I thought made the change its name, made this huge bet on something that I think is, obviously several years away but who you know but I, but also you know this that technology keeps getting better and maybe maybe next time we do this we'll be wearing giant boxes on our heads who knows you never know you mentioned about them making this pivot or embracing this whole thing about user generated content what are your thoughts about the concept of as well as the viability or feasibility of facebook being regulated like a utility it does in some ways, play that type of a role in the society. 
Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, there was so much discussion, I think, at the peak of Facebook in like 2017, of this question of how do you regulate these platforms? Should they in some sense be treated as public? I mean, I think while we were having that conversation, Facebook and, and Twitter now really became a lot less relevant. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's, that was actually, to some degree, the argument they were making is, you're crazy to say that we're utilities, we are in fact, or monopolies, like we're businesses competing desperately in a very competitive space. I kind of think that's true. Like, I think they're losing. And so mm-hmm. it's, and, and in some ways, I think the the appetite for regulation at times has shifted to the companies seeing advantages in creating regulatory environments that are harder for small players to enter and that can kind of like, like even complying with GDPR, like means like ti- it still makes it a little harder for a tiny little company to compete with a Google or a Facebook. I think you see this with AI right now. The biggest players are quite eager for regulation. You know, I think in part because they're freaked out by what they've created and in, you know, maybe in some of them, they'll probably fight ones that aren't good for their bottom line. But I do think there's also a sense that like, if you're at Google, like, well, Google actually has like a big re- compliance team that can comply with these regulations and, and a little startup competing with them might not. Well, you talk about the declining relevance of these. One of the questions I have met, like I talk in my book about the danger to the society of Trump having a platform like Twitter and then also like Facebook, but like, you know, Prior to these technologies, people who had these views, it was much harder for them to communicate and coordinate and be connected. And all of a sudden, you had this man who, you know, was refusing to accept the democratic outcome of this country, able to communicate on a daily basis with a single tweet to 90 million people. So I'm fascinated or curious, maybe, about, because, you know, Musk has come on and he's let Trump back on Twitter. It doesn't seem like he's back on Twitter. And I don't know if you have any reflections on that in terms of why isn't he back on fully utilizing that platform? You know, I think this is really interesting. It's made me, I mean, I think I would have agreed with you three or four years ago that that Donald, that social media was really central to Donald Trump's appeal. Mm-hmm. And then, but I, I mean, but I do think we're now running an experiment in which he is not on Facebook and Twitter and it does not seem to have cut into his poll numbers at all. Mm. Seems to have had no impact, right? And I do think that his rise in 2015 owed a lot to that media e- ecosystem, but probably owed a little more than I think many people were will, were open to believing at the time to his vast popularity with Republicans that was not a media phenomenon and was like a political phenomenon and wasn't about social media and was about television, if anything. Well, that then is kind of my other question is what is what are your thoughts around the relative importance and power, I guess, in our society of these different platforms, and particularly looking at these new media platforms vis-a-vis, well, television in particular, right? And I reflect back on, um, you know, originally Glenn Beck over at Fox News became this huge social force, and he was driven out, did his, was it the blaze or whatnot, yeah. but he did not occupy the same space, I didn't feel, in the country's politics and psychology and then now similarly, Tucker Carlson, right, out at Fox, trying to set up shop over at, on Twitter, so what what's your reflection on the relative influence and importance of the those traditional platforms, particularly television, vis-a-vis these new media platforms? Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of tricky thing to understand about the landscape right now is that everything is getting smaller. Mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson leaves Fox. That diminishes Fox's power a bit. But it's not like Tucker is going to build something bigger than Fox. He's going to build another smaller thing, which will compete mm-hmm. with Ben Shapiro, which will compete with voices to the further right. And, and it's a more splintered ecosystem. Those interesting statistic I've seen recently is that 
if you if you ask people about podcasts, in fact, like this one, and you say, not everybody has a favorite podcast, but among the people who have a favorite podcast, obviously your podcast is first. But yes, um, of but uh, but narrowly trailing you is Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. But as you'd expect, Rogan's the biggest podcast in the country. But the most interesting thing about it is that biggest slot, that Joe Rogan slot, is only five percent of the market. Mm-hmm. So it's a to- very very fragmented ecosystem, right? Where the mm-hmm. biggest one is five percent. Everything else is smaller. Most of the action is sort of in the middle of the tail. And um, it's an it's a very sort of splintered, fragmented ecosystem. I think hard to say, complicated to ask, is that better or is it worse than the sort of social media centralization of the previous decade? But, you know, fundamentally cable news, which for the last 20-ish years has been this core force in American politics, it's not breaking news that, that, tele- that people are cutting the cord, that television is in decline. But it's been in decline for a long time and slowly. And so it's sort of, you sort of forget about it. A TV executive said to me recently that he wasn't worried because he's melting in the shade, which is like, I mean, on one hand, okay, but you're, you're still you're still melting over there. And so as those platforms all get smaller and a million little other more fragmented things thrive, I mean, maybe you're back in a moment that's more like, you know, the 19th century when there were 100 newspapers all screaming at each other from different perspectives. I don't really know, but it is a it, it does feel like a very different moment. What's your read in terms of the influence on politics, right? Because it certainly, I mean, people, it's almost like, in terms of young people, I think people have probably forgotten how big a cultural force Glenn Beck was in the country. Yeah. And But then he's kind of like faded out. And it's not like he dominates elections, rather than there was a lot of, you know, kowtowing to Tucker Carlson from all the different people running for president on the Republican side when he was on Fox News. And I, I might even know my own experience. I, I, so I wonder, is there something distinctive about being on television? And I've had this experience of like, you could do something and be on like whatever, YouTube or even a broad you know, thing that goes out that gets quantitatively more views. But if you're on TV, the way people say, oh, I saw you on TV, like it means, seems to mean something different in our society. And I don't know if you're, you think that Well, that's one thing is that the, the that these digital platforms lie about their numbers. And so, you know, Mm. you may have done a Twitter video which says that 93 billion people saw it, but perhaps the number is slightly smaller. Mm. Um, And there still are hundreds of thousands of people watching television concurrently, which is a lot of people. Um, They're also much more likely to be voters, right? MSNBC's audience is sort of older African-American people who vote. Fox's audience is older white people who vote. And so they have outsized political influence and also... I think that they have a sort of influence that comes from the fact that people just have the television on Fox and it could be, they could be watching a kind of generic Republican yelling about how bad Joe Biden is, or they could be watching a kind of like populist demagogue leading them in a totally different direction, which is what Tucker was doing. And so that's a real influence. It's it's different from saying, oh, I love that Tucker Carlson guy. I agree with him on everything. I'm going to go watch him some more, as opposed to like, I'm just like a normal Republican person in my 70s who suddenly has all this far-right philosophy being beamed at me. And that partly was the power of that slot in a Fox, is that, is that people are kind of waiting to decide what they think. Whereas if you're choosing a podcast that already reflects your view, it's not really a persuasion environment. So I, I do think that's why Carlson had so much power on Fox. And even I, I bet he makes a lot of money. I bet he has a big following. He's influential, but it's different to not be sort of handed this captive audience of millions of people. Do you think that on the progressive side of the spectrum, that the development of Rachel Maddow leaving her broadcast media platform Trevor Noah giving up the Daily Show to go do. Do you think that's a 
trends that reflect where things are heading in the media or those, those kind of one-offs? I mean, I think that like the gradual shrinking of cable news is, is a big, big trend that, you know, isn't going to sort of, it's not going to happen instantly. Mm-hmm. It's an audience that's kind of aging out. There aren't really new people coming to cable. And I think, you know, if you follow the drama at CNN, mm-hmm. you sort of zoom out, what you really saw was that Jeff Zucker, I think reasonably kind of looked around and trying to grow CNN's audience and sort of said, okay, there's a fixed number of people who are going to watch cable news. We're not, there are mm-hmm. no new ones. Some of them are at Fox, some, a few are at CNN, some more at MSNBC. We're going to raid MSNBC. Mm-hmm. So they did programming that was directly competitive with MSNBC, sheared off a bunch of Democrats who were really freaked out about Trump. New regime came in and said, you know, we don't like being so partisan. We're going back to the center, but there wasn't anybody there. There were no, I mean, there are people there. They're just not watching cable news. They're watching HGTV and they don't want to switch. And and so you're, so I think some of the sort of flailing that you're seeing in cable is, is about the fact that it's a declining business and it's, you know, it's a, and, and a great business with huge margins that's declining. And so they're, you know, fighting like hell to stay alive. It was, I'm in the process of debating cutting the the cord on cable and I was all like, what do I actually watch? I watch ESPN, Golf Channel, and HGTV. Those are the three <laughs> things I actually watch. Yeah. Yeah. And ESP and honestly in, in just in the business terms, the biggest news of the last year probably was the Wall Street Journal reporting in this field that ESPN is looking for ways to go over the top. Because if you could have an ESPN app, you might not need the other 97 channels, right? Mm-hmm. So you talk a lot in the book, we talked, you know, in this pod, some about how the right-wing populism was really enabled and accelerated by a lot of this technology. If you look at the left side of the spectrum, who do you see using technology well, if anybody? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Like who's, who, who's sort of out front on the left? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that AOC's sort of ability to engage people on Instagram is pretty interesting. Like, and, and there's a Democratic congressman whose name I'm forgetting who's on TikTok. And honestly, these are just like basically younger people. He, him, Jeff, his name Jeff Jackson, maybe, and AOC, who are native to that environment, super comfortable there. A lot of their followers are too, and can communicate in a very human, three dimensional way that I think is building a lot of loyalty for them. I'm kind of interested in this this uh, outfit in More Perfect Union, if you've ever bounced off it. It's a labor, it's kind of a labor movement. I'm not sure who funds it, but it's it's a former Huffington Post people and it's a it's vid, it's all video and has broken some news, but also gotten very kind of involved in some of the big organizing fights. Mm-hmm. That's been pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess progressives just don't have their own truth social. I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, even with in terms of like the platform piece, right? You talk a lot about and I remember I was there when it was uh coming of age when you know Ariane Huffington created Huffington Post, right? Yeah. It was very clearly like they we need to have a vehicle and a platform, et cetera. Right. It's not clear to me. Maybe it's just not clear to me that's what says where where we're at now. It's just not clear where the places to go on the landscape are, right? I mean, you know, the nineties talk radio on the right was a big thing. As you look at the landscape today, how much clarity is there should it be should we all be focusing on tiktok is that the way to get the word out to the world I mean, do you have a assessment on any of that i mean again i think i just think i mean i think it's a more splintered environment in which the biggest you know the biggest piece is still broadcast television by the way mm-hmm. um also shrinking but still the biggest and then i mean i think a lot of politicians increasingly are kind of going direct with their own channels their own podcasts but if it used to be like, okay, I'm just on Twitter. Now it's like, it's pretty splintered and fragmented where, where, where you're going to be to talk to people. 
And so as we heading into 2024 uh, presidential election, how do you see the various candidates, because particularly on the on the Republican side, navigating this media reality in terms of how are they going to like distinguish themselves or do you see any any particular people, I guess, who are standing out? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, Trump, Trump is this, you know, just has, I think, with his with email, a very direct connection to a lot of Republicans Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of loyalty. DeSantis is clearly playing really hard to the most hard right parts of the media, mm-hmm. trying to find space to Donald Trump's right. I think you see figures like Chris Christie and Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, you know, and to some degree Trump. I think mean, one of the most interesting things is that, you know, Trump attacks the media and mm-hmm. says he hates journalists and hates the media and has done kind of pretty scary stuff to stir up hatred of the media, but also lives through the media and uses those attacks to get himself attention. And, and one of my colleagues wrote in Semaphore that like DeSantis almost like took Trump's attacks on the media literally rather than seriously. And, mm. you know, and, and is like, yes, I hate the media. I will not appear on the mainstream media. I will only speak to like hyper-partisan Florida blogs that are sponsored by my allies. Mm-hmm. And the problem is like, there's no people there. And he's speaking this language of the internet to people who already agree with him when still like most rep- more Republican primary voters are probably watching local television and broadcast and, and the Today Show. And I think there's a real, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see if DeSantis can, like if this works for DeSantis, I think Trump and the other candidates actually are much still in some ways back to a more traditional strategy where you're not living primarily on social media, you're trying to talk to people in more mainstream fora. I mean, that's why you saw the Republican National Committee is trying really hard to make sure its debates are broadcast by outlets like NBC, because they're afraid of getting trapped in this pretty small echo chamber. Well, just as a, you know, reporter and political observer looking at like this DeSantis phenomenon, one of the things I find fascinating, I don't know how this is going to play itself out. You were saying he is running, trying to run hard to Trump's right, both you know, politically, culturally, et cetera, to try to outflank him there to build up his. But he also is kind of seen as the primary alternative for those who are not on Trump's right, who want an alternative to Trump. But you take that, it's like, can you run so far to the right and be successful? But then how does that play in a general election against somebody, you know, who's kind of middle of the road as Biden? I mean, I think, you know, what you're seeing right now is like, it seems like not. Right. Like whatever he's doing does not seem to be working. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which is why there's 97 camp people running for president right now. Right. The Republican said. Um, let's talk about semaphore. So since you left BuzzFeed, you started semaphore. So what is it? What are you trying to do with it? And I guess first question is, where does the name come from? Oh, so the name is it's an old an old word that means like the bearer of a signal. It has mm. a meaning in computer science. It has. And, and if you you must not be I, I, I am not. A, uh, a yachtsman, but apparently if you're into boating, those flags they wave are semaphores. And But the thing we liked about it, along with just sort of that straightforward meaning, is that it's the same word or a version of that word in like 50 languages. Mm. And we and I think we're, you know, we, I think if you're doing, if you're trying to start from scratch in this particular world, you need to take a global view. So many of the biggest stories so the, the we're talking about, social media, the rise of the far right, COVID, are basically, are really deeply global stories. And so... Um, we launched in the U.S. and in Sub-Saharan Africa, actually. Oh, wow. And and our you know our basic thesis is the stuff I said before that people feel really overwhelmed by the amount that's coming into them, and they aren't sure who to trust. And so we're trying to sort of establish these trusted voices of individual journalists who are really transparent about what they actually believe. You know, and 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 then to use both their original journalism and their ability to 
pull all the most important stories from everywhere and say, hey, this is what you ought to read. Don't worry about this one to kind of help our audience navigate this this weird moment. And so where are you kind of, kind of at in terms of your growth and development? What, what are your areas of focus and distribution channels? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're, 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 we're in e- email newsletters. We're also on the web. We do a big events actually, and we have some video, but I hope folks listening to this will sign up for our emails at semaphore.com. And we, and we're covering, we have, you know, I think great journalists covering these key beats. We, um, that's finance with Liz Hoffman, who came from the Wall Street Journal. We have a team in Washington. Steve Clemens, who you may know, is, is, is leading it. Great AI and tech coverage. I'm writing our media newsletter, and we've got a handful of other verticals, you know, and we're trying to sort of have a high level, thoughtful adult conversation with our audience that's both, you know, where we're breaking big stories, but also really trying to bring in other voices and not imagine that we have kind of a monopoly on the truth. So like, lastly, as you reflect back on this decade, and that's the advantage I don't know, of writing a book, you get a chance to think about all that stuff and try to try to share it. What advice would you give to the young Ben Smith sitting on that stoop in 2008? Huh. I mean, I think just to stay in tune with where the audience is, with what people want, the moment changes, right? And I think in that, in these early internet moments that I think a lot of us now look back on as like, ah, that didn't turn out the way we planned. It's also worth remembering how bad, I mean, and I think a lot of people are nostalgic for the sort of 80s and 90s broadcast and print media that was so much more centralized and under control and mm-hmm. and, and felt less disorienting. But there was also, I think, a rebellion against that media for a reason. I mean, the main reason being the Iraq War, which which that media got so totally wrong. But and more broadly, like it was, you know, it was it was it sort of enforced a consensus that I think has from a lot of dis- different directions been challenged. And maybe there's an opportunity to reestablish some kind of shared facts. But I, but I think that some of the nostalgia is also misplaced. Well, I do have one more question because one of the things that I noted, you know, when you're at BuzzFeed is you did do a lot. I mean, as reflecting in just kind of like, you know, my own past and where we're going, really appreciating the relationships with and helping uh, particularly younger people get going and get elevated in their careers and where they're going. And so there's a lot of people that you did help to bring into and 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 kind of project up onto the landscape um, in media and journalism when you were at BuzzFeed in particular. So I don't know if do you have reflections on that in terms of because maybe it is a thing of like advice to younger people who are trying to break in or trying to get more established in the in the media and the journalism world. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, I mean, one of the real joys of BuzzFeed was being able to sort of hire up this incredible kind of generation of talent who are now now all over the place and who were native to this new environment and kind of open about it. I mean, it's funny. I think, though, it's interesting because I think it's very important to be fluent in the tools of the moment, right? Whether that's ChatGPT now or whether it was video editing or whatever they're teaching at journalism schools now. But I do think that sometimes young reporters get a little distracted from the core thing, which is that you have to break news. Like it's Mm. called news. It's called news. You got to have some news and you can be as good as you want at writing and making photos and presentation and stuff. But the most effective way to get into the media business is, um, is to break news. I was just talking to a great, great business journalist who you know, she got a job on like the rewrite desk. But the reason that she became a star was because she watched these reporters 
break news. Somebody got sick and she, you know, got one of those jobs for a few months and broke a bunch of news. And I do think ultimately, I mean, as you know, from me bothering through you through the years, new information remains kind of the coin of the realm in the news business. And there's sort of a highfalutin, like um, abstract conversation about news that sometimes neglects that. And I sometimes think that young journalists can be sort of poorly served by thinking too much about the nature of journalism and not enough about, wow, well, I'm covering the cops in Cincinnati. Like, what's the bad thing they're doing that I want to find out about? Right, right. Yeah, no, and then there's this whole thing happened with uh, Stanford's president and the stories that broke about him and this. That was some pretty high impact student journalism. I'm not right. deeply familiar with the story, but yeah, right. that's like pretty incredible. Freshman or sophomore, right? just got breaking <laughs> news to your point, right? So yeah, right. Yeah. All right. So we gotta can't go on forever, but I really, uh, it's great to reconnect, Ben. I really appreciate you making the time and um, I really did uh, enjoy the book. It was very, well, particularly for somebody who didn't know a lot of this like i was vaguely aware of the gawker and jezebel and what are these things yeah. and so it was very helpful because like, as a historical uh, retrospective so. yeah i know i know i sort of felt the same way reporting it out all right that's all the time we have for today i do really recommend ben's book really from what i was saying at the end there about as a, a reflection and a kind of like a not exactly walk down memory lane but to really look back on this decade which was a crazy decade in terms of media developments and you can better appreciate how it all came it came to be and what these different things were and the connections and whatnot. I really did enjoy enjoy reading it. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Ben on Twitter at SemaphoreBen, S-E-M-A-F-O-R. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and Fola Onifade, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.